finally somebody's going to connect all these pillars together and just tell me what I need to know. This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I've met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the elder planning counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Hi, and welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. This is Jason Watt. Today's episode will be good for life insurance credits in British Columbia, Alberta. No accident and sickness credits though, only life in Alberta. As well as Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario. It'll be good for professional development credit on the IROC side, a financial planning credit from FP Canada, and the normal IAS credit from Advocus. In this episode, we're going to talk with Adrian George. Adrian is a financial planner based in Calgary. And of course, I just used his last name, which you're not accustomed to with financial advisors and financial planners, but we didn't talk about any uh, very specific client scenarios here. And at the end of the episode, you'll hear Adrian specifically asks for people to reach out to him. I would actually encourage it. I know a few people, uh, mostly in Calgary, but a few people who use Adrian for uh, mentoring, and he's more than happy to do that. He's been really free to share his, uh, his knowledge, and you'll hear that uh, he does that through some volunteer work and through some informal work as well. I would encourage you to reach out to him if you're uh, thinking about specializing, if you're thinking about dealing with medical professionals or some other uh, specific niche like that. He's quite a good resource. He's very proficient both technically and also on the uh, behavioral side. And as you'll hear in the interview, he continues to learn uh, perpetually. He never stops with that. The color for today's episode is brown. The color for today's episode is brown. Okay. In the interview, you'll hear Adrian uh, touch on quite a few technical topics. The first thing that I want to talk about, and I know a lot of you will be aware of this, but uh, newer advisors will not, and it's something that I see students struggle with a little bit in the CFP curriculum, the concept of a professional corporation. A professional corporation is a specific structure allowed uh, typically under the relevant legislation that governs the profession in question. So most provinces have a Medical Professions Act or a Healthcare Professions Act, some version of that. You'll find a Legal Professions Act sometimes. We see this with engineering professions, sometimes for architects and veterinarians. There's a whole bunch of uh, different professions that would be governed by some sort of professional legislation. And this varies quite a bit by province. There are no safe assumptions from one province to the next. And what I guide students to do here is to go to the 
respective regulatory college. So if you were in Alberta, for example, you would go to the website for the College of Physicians and Surgeons. Those websites almost always have a really good set of resources for understanding what a professional corporation can look like in that province or if there's limitations on professional corporations or even if they're permitted. Uh, it's sometimes necessary, unfortunately, to go read the legislation. Uh, this is where dealing with the client's accountant and lawyer is useful. I would suggest that the financial planner who doesn't uh, properly explore the full set of options here is likely to get themselves into trouble. And we get some variations here. Uh, for example, when you have a, a physician who moves from, from one province to the next, or much more complicated, leaves the country, we may get further complexity because the Prof Corp rules you have in your home jurisdiction may not apply. So the, the limitations that we see with professional corporations do vary. The, the base limitation you'll typically see here is that there is no liability protection with respect to your professional activities. If it's a physician, that physician, if they commit some medical malpractice, there's going to be a full exposure of both their personal and corporate liability. That is, the person who was harmed by that medical malpractice would, without restriction, be able to sue both the physician's corporation and the physician personally. And this, of course, is why we carry, in that case, medical malpractice insurance, but some sort of liability insurance. Of course, financial advisors would be well familiar with that concept. In most cases, if a financial advisor is allowed to incorporate, uh, they will have to be incorporated both personally and corporately, if they're incorporated. And that allows, the again, the client to sue the financial advisor both personally and professionally. It's not quite the same as a professional corporation, but it's a similar outcome. We do have other restrictions with professional corporations. Uh, these vary quite a bit. Adrian mentions in the interview a uh, restriction on holding companies. Uh, we sometimes find that trusts cannot hold shares. We might find restrictions on non-professionals. This is very common, actually, on non-professionals holding voting shares. For example, if you have a physician who is married, the physician might be able to hold uh, voting shares, the spouse might be permitted to hold non-voting shares, and then you'll see similar restrictions for uh, minor children and for adult children of the physician. Those are all going to vary by jurisdiction. Of course, today with the TOSI rules, having the spouse own non-voting shares uh, exclusively for Dividend income splitting purposes is not that attractive, but I still think there's some utility to it, uh, possibly for future use of lifetime capital gains exemption or for a post-65 retirement planning. Of course, no TOSI after the physician turns 65. And possibly, who knows, we may see the TOSI rules uh, struck down at some point. The other uh, technical area that Adrian mentions here, and he just touches on it ever so briefly, uh, is the butterfly freeze. I'll actually put a link in the show notes to a good write-up from uh, Mark Goodfield, who has a, a blog called The Blunt Bean Counter. He has a really good and thorough description of the butterfly freeze or butterfly transaction, as it's sometimes called. What that essentially is, it's sometimes called the corporate divorce, and that's where you're taking your corporation 
and splitting it into two corporations. It's actually quite a complicated transaction, and you're going to do this usually in one of two circumstances. Uh, sometimes when you have a corporation that has to be split into two, and this might happen with a divorce. And an example of this would be if we have a, a real estate investor, for example, who has a whole bunch of real estate in a corporation, and that forms the, the vast majority of their net worth, and that person goes through a marital breakdown, uh, instead of using shares of the corporation, what we might actually do here is break the corporation into two entities. The real estate investor would keep one of those entities and their spouse, their new ex, might keep the other entity. That would be a way to uh, accomplish a division of matrimonial assets where it might not otherwise be practical to do that. Uh, or the other example where you see this done is where we have a bunch of passive assets sitting in the corporation and maybe we want to use the lifetime capital gains exemption as part of a freeze. And what we might do there is take the passive assets and strip them out into a new corporation. That's a little bit of a more complicated scenario, but both of those are quite expensive to engage in and require uh, both legal and accounting advice. It's good to know about that tool. I would suggest that the financial advisor might recognize when a freeze like that is necessary or when that transaction is necessary, but the heavy lifting is gonna be done by the other advisors in that case. Okay, let's hear from Adrian. Okay, I'm joined today by Adrian George. Adrian is a financial planner in uh, Calgary and uh, carries insurance license, formerly carried investment licensing, but uh, chatting about this just before we got started here and no longer has uh, any investment licensing. I've got that right, Adrian? That's correct, Jason. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. Yeah, and uh, our, of course, our listeners won't get to see us, but uh, yeah, Adrian and I have known each other for quite a while, so always good to make the connection, and especially today in the era of COVID when you don't get to see anybody ever except on Zoom like this. So, um, so Adrian, I asked you here specifically today because I know you've really uh, developed your practice into specializing in working with professional corporations. Is that that's about right? Yeah, that's right. Um, can you talk about what led you down that path a little bit? Why did you end up with Prof Corps? Where did you kind of start off when you when you started independent? It wasn't so much that I said specifically professional corporations. So when I decided to come out on my own from working in institutions for so many years, um, what I, I decided that I wanted to originally work with firefighters because I figured, well, they're you know they're four days on and five days off. Often they will start a business, but as much as they will tend to go towards uh, you know, accidents where you think insurance would be very helpful. Uh, and they also also start a lot of businesses or some things they hadn't considered, such as they generally don't like insurance. Uh, on top of that, they have a divorce rate about two and a half times the national average. And I think that's because they're either home too much or not enough. And so it made a lot of that sort of longer term planning very, very challenging. Um, so what I decided was that I wanted to work with people that I could relate to. So at the time that I started working in this area, uh, you know, young family, uh, building a business, I had a debt and car loans and, you know, things like that. And um, I decided that I wanted to work with other professionals because at least for, even though I wouldn't be an engineer or no danger of being a doctor anytime soon, 
that I could still relate to them on other levels. And so that's what got me towards a professional corporation because I figured, well, if I understand professional corporations, then I don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. I can work with an accountant, I can work with an engineer, a physician, a dentist, all will come back to work within a professional corporation. So that's really how I started targeting professional corporations since then. And what's interesting to note is that if you do start to work with the niche market, you really should be constantly refining it. And so I started to work mostly with dentists and physicians. And now I generally work mostly with physicians. So I still quite often work with dentists as well. And is there, you talk about refining that market. Do you find you're dealing with sort of pre-retirement physicians or new docs or has that happened at all? Yeah. Well, generally speaking, I work with the younger medical professionals. Uh, what I've come to realize, of course, is that that's a static point in time. And I'm the one that's slowly pulling further and further away as I get closer and closer to the ones that are considering their pre-retirement. So part of my overall refinement of my process isn't just who I'm working with. It's picking that next generation. You know, I'm fortunate to have a wonderful assistant who's become a paraplanner and become a good friend of mine now, who's been groomed towards being able to take off from the where I leave off, which is those younger medical professionals, as I start to transition towards those ones that are pre-retiring and the different concerns. Reason being is, so I stay relatable to them. We're gonna be going through the same things together. And meanwhile, the people that we work so hard just build up the reputation with, that's just not left behind because I've got a fantastic person to help carry that with me. That's uh, interesting. I hope you don't mind me going down the practice management route a little bit here, but- Not at all. uh, What does the- sort of succession planning discussion look like with that fantastic paraplanner? Well, you know, I think probably the problem within our industry is we're very quick to slap on a planner label or, you know, an insurance expert label or whatever that may be. And we go out there without really uh, even any training wheels. You know, unlike things such as uh, professions such as lawyers who might have an articling student or something like this, we're just sort of out there. And I think that's a great disservice to the client first, but also to that individual. You know, I think we'd have a much greater success rate and people staying in this industry. And it's a wonderful industry. I mean, we get to be with our clients at their best times and at their worst times and making a difference all the way through. And yet we really struggle to get that next and younger generation into our industry. So by her transitioning from an assistant into a paraplanner role and eventually from a paraplanner into a junior associate and so on and so forth, uh, my goal is eventually that she would become a partner with me in my company. Um, but everybody that I ever work with always has to have two things. They have to have an educational career path and a career path. Right? So in other words, that's great that you've achieved your CFP. What's next? Right? Now, in that, we're going to take that. Do you want to go and stay in a paraplanner role or do you want to go into the associate uh, and the, the advisor role? And so that's really what I want because it's one of those catch-22s, I think, of running any good business is uh, that I want to move you up. It means that, unfortunately, I lose a good person in that particular role, but it's because you're so darn good, I've got to move you up into that other role and the business can just continue to grow and thrive accordingly. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I do agree that it would be really nice if we had a a developed articling model in this business. This sounds like uh, maybe you and I could solve this world's problems over a scotch one night here, right? (laughs) I will take you up on that. Nice. Um, When we can see each other in person again, right? Um, So 
you've uh, you've kind of landed then on physicians and and some dentists as your sort of prof corp model. And I know some people will be well aware of this, but it's something that I I run into uh, you know teaching CFP is a lot of people really aren't aware of the differences between professional corporations and other corporations. Yeah, you know, there's, there's quite a few. Um, there's three that I can think of off the top of my head that are particularly salient. Um, first of all, of course, generally speaking, a operating company, like a regular operating company, would have the, the shareholder liability limited to the assets, the company, the liabilities of the company. Uh, unless there's fraudulent conveyance or some other, re- or they signed a personal guarantee or something along those lines. But generally speaking, it's limited to the, the assets and liabilities of the company. Uh, with a professional corporation, we have to add in the fact that they can have a malpractice consideration. Right? And so we have a limited liability is one of the first things I would mention when you want to talk about the differences between a regular uh, company sorry, and a professional corporation. Um, often you'll also see the professional corporations limited in the sense of both the ownership. So only the professional usually can be the voting shareholder of that corporation. Um, and in Alberta and, and in some other provinces, those shares have to be owned by the professional directly and not in a holding company or a family trust. Uh, and I guess a third thing that I would say is uh, what I've seen and encountered actually quite a few times is where one of the shareholders, if it's a 50-50 uh, partnership, they might own, like if they're both physicians, they might both have one professional corporation. And the reasons that I've heard is it's simplicity or maybe the accountant recommended because we're just not saving or retaining enough earnings to go above the small business limit. And that can certainly have its appeal, but I would find a couple of really um, big problems with that. Uh, Number one, for those of you that look at disability, for example, for a physician, if you have one physician that's earning significantly higher than the other, but they have 50-50 ownership, most insurance companies, unless you can provide a detailed breakdown of who has earned what, will just go, you know what, here's the income from the professional corporation allocated 50-50. And so you're underinsuring the person with the higher income and the contribution to the professional corporation. So that's problem number one. And problem number two is when one of them is a U.S. citizen uh, or sometimes an accidental American, as we sometimes call them. So sometimes they know it and sometimes they honestly have no idea. I've, my best friend... Uh, uh, was our best man for my wedding was uh, just born in in Texas came up here as a baby doesn't really believe that he's a U.S. citizen uh, <laughs> he will find out otherwise yes. um, so the problem that that happens is, is first of all it's not a Canadian controlled private corporation because you have a 50-50 ownership it also throws in other wrenches such as the use of the capital dividend account I mean in Canada we have a theory of integration but the U.S. does not have that same theory of integration. And so things like our CDA that we use for insurance or capital gains, they themselves are not going to be treated the same way when you have a 50-50 ownership with a U.S. citizen. So there's, there's quite a number, but those would be the three salient ones that I would think of that can really impact a lot of the planning that you want to do. Yeah, interesting. And actually, you, if you're not a CCPC, and I'm asking you a question here, I guess, if you're not a CCPC, am I concerned about the Passive income rules now? 
Well, that's always a concern. I mean, that, those are ones uh, like you and I were talking earlier. It's a lot of these things like the TOSI and passive income rules. It's like it's like that escape room that you have to, you don't even know where the exits are, right? And you're automatically trapped with those ones. So it, it really can create an issue. And sometimes the planning for that can be to opt out of being a CCPC, right? It, it's a lot more complicated, a lot more complex. And as we'll probably chat a bit later, one of the many reasons that I, after 22 years of having a wealth license, divested of, of my wealth license, because it's just becoming so complex that you just can't possibly be on top of everything all the time. So yes. there are lots of different strategies, but it's always going to be specific to the individuals that we're dealing with. I definitely want to talk about that asset management question. I want to circle back to the liability point before I get too mm-hmm. far away from this. So, um, and yeah, absolutely. The, the prof corp structure, of course, attaches professional liability for like medical malpractice, like you said. Um, do you see your physicians still using personal guarantees or do you find they're able to borrow uh, free of personal guarantees? What I find is that they are ignorantly signing personal guarantees. So for example, one of my clients, physician buying into a practice, the practice is well established, it's been in business many, many years, and they, it just prints out money. Uh, more than sufficient on top of their associate income, more than sufficient to pay for the loan and a long history, as I mentioned. And yet the bank who has dealt with all the other partners insists on a personal guarantee. And I was pushing back saying, why would you? I mean, you know, do you want this business or not? This is basically risk-free because it's not just the one person that had all the income responsibility. There's multiple partners here. So if one person couldn't make it, it's not like that income stream is going to dry up. Right. And so they just basically hear some papers in front and they sign. So uh, I would say in, in the vast majority of the ones where I've seen a personal guarantee, really, they didn't even know what they were signing. I, and I don't think that's exceptional for physicians. I think almost nobody knows what a personal guarantee is or their liability exposure when they deal with a well, no. like that. We have that with the CEBA, the $40,000 uh, line of credit. And people didn't realize that when you sign up for that, it's automatically treated as a personal guarantee and all of a sudden it will show up on their personal credit. Uh, and so I've had people contact me. I'm like, well, if you'd let me know, I could have told you that. <laughs> so you know, we end up signing it really without even knowing, uh, without investing. And he says, okay, if this is what I need to get my loan. And they are, in fairness to the physicians, and I, when I say physicians, I'm talking to the professionals, but I, that's usually, of course, where I work with. So excuse me if I, if I default that way. But in fairness to them, uh, that's not what they're expected to know, Right. They are, their value is in the OR or in that dental chair. You know, their value is not reading through all the documents. They, they rely on people like us and their other professional advisors to help them navigate that. And so my big push there is that we should be included in as many of those conversations, at least so they go in with their eyes open. Have you found sometimes that you have um, what might be a good prospect, but might be resistant to sort of involving you in all of their uh, relevant conversations? Um, not as often. Uh, I think probably every now and then you get that, but I think that's also when they don't understand where our, our value fits in because a lot of advisors will go out there and say, I've got this great tax idea or here's how in an overfunded insurance policy work, for example. And where the, that person then struggles is, well, just a minute, I, I have an accountant for my tax issues and I have a lawyer for my corporation issues or, or my, my trust issues, whatever else I need. So I think if it was getting any reluctance on that, it's just that they simply don't understand what our value is yet. 
right? Um, but once they understand really how we can coordinate everything, I've actually found quite the opposite. It's great. Here's, they are so willing to show everything they have, and they will finally, somebody's going to connect all these pillars together and just tell me what I need to know. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly the ideal is you get that, that trusted relationship, right, where you're in all those conversations. So I know you said you're, you're sort of moving along in the, uh, say, lifespan of your clients, but I know you also have some uh, recent grads, some new docs, and you just talked about sort of coming out of med school, and I know yeah. dentists have the same problem without having been taught a lot of this stuff. What do you, what do you find is different or what, what's your uh, maybe primary effort when you're dealing with those, those new uh, professionals? Yeah, you know, it's, it's really interesting um, when you're dealing with a new professional that comes out, like a recent grad. Um, there's a big heart and mind battle that goes on. So what do I mean by that? Uh, they are the target of everybody coming to say, here's how much of a mortgage you are approved for. Here's how much of a car loan you can get. Here's how much of everything. And they see what their colleagues are doing, and they, they really want to be with them. Um, but they also, of course, have come out very often with about 250000 or so of student loan debt. And so they go, but I'd really like to pay that down while everybody's coming to them and saying, here's how much you can get automatically approved for. Uh, so the heart and mind battle, like, you know, when it comes to things like debt repayment, uh, I like to say that there's actually like a four-way tug of war. That, uh, that a recent grad is going through. So, you know, typically if we ask, if I ask a new physician, let's say, um, and they might have a car loan, a student loan, uh, and a mortgage, and maybe they've recently incorporated. And I'll say, well, when we want to talk your debt strategy, which one do you want to pay off first? And usually the response I'm going to get back is, I know, I know, the one with the highest interest rate. <laughs> and I think they say, because that's what I think the right answer is. Now, assuming we don't have some credit card level, you know, interest rate that we're dealing with, uh, I like to rephrase that question and say, well, when you consider your debt management strategies, what's more important to you? And could you please tell me why? We could pay off your car loan probably faster because it's a shorter amortization and it's a bigger payment relative to the outstanding balance. But that's not an interest thing, really. That's, that's a get that monkey off my back. That's free up my cash flow kind of a thing. Now, the student loan is typically done over a 10-year period, give or take, um, and it's a very valuable asset, their ability to work. But the issue is if they lose their ability to work, there's no tangible asset they can sell to mitigate or eliminate that student loan, right? barring having insurance, of course, in place. <laughs> which which um, they might end up doing. Exactly. So, so, so that's an intangible debt consideration, right? Um, or their mortgage, which is often their biggest one, uh, and they know that they, if they pay it early, they'll save more interest compounding over time. But the problem is to do any of those three on an, on an accelerated basis. You have to take money out from the low-rate corporate to the high-rate personal. Right? And so then the question is, well, the heart and mind battle is, well, the heart says, please get rid of that debt. <laughs> But the mind says, I'm going to pay 48% of tax to save three, four, five, 8% of interest. And that's a real battle for them. But the other issue that I see when people are just bombarding them with uh, high payments is, of course, with TOSI rules, we can only get so much income into a partner's hands, if that's applicable, that, that they have one that they can do that. Um, and so the vast majority, if not all of that income, falls into their hands. And we live 
in a pre-tax earnings world, but an after-tax living world. And so that pushes them up into these high tax rates where to get that $10,000 out, we're going to have to take out $20,000. Unfortunately, they usually forget about that second half and they've taken out the $10,000 and then comes this big whopper of a tax bill, which to get that out also has tax to pay and they can very quickly snowball behind the tax ban. Right? And that's an area that we really want to avoid. So I guess to sum that up, it's one of the things where um, it's a new world that's opened up all these, these years of hard work to get there. Uh, they, they want to do what they see their colleagues doing. And yet at the same time, I think they really need the advisor to go, okay, you know what? Let's just take it down for a moment here and really start to map some things out. Right? It's going to be a lot easier to set things up the right way than to have to try to undo them after the fact. So that would be my caution for any advisors that really want to work with them is as much as they want to go charging off in a certain direction or that the client might want to go charging off in a certain direction. I think it really is on us to develop the right debt management strategy, add in the right lifestyle, then use the right insurance products and the amount to protect against those ones. So that what's left over, we can decide if you want to accelerate their, their debt reduction or if you want to do additional savings, for example. Do you talk about, uh, for example, the tax credit associated with student loan interest? Is that something that shows up in that discussion? It, it does to a degree, but usually in the discussion with the accountant. Right. So to the, to the professional, you know, you're talking a different language. You know, they know they get some benefits out of that one. They, they don't actually, I would challenge that most people don't know the difference between a deduction and a credit, for example. So, um, and, and really it's not, the, it's, it's not the bigger question that I want to ask, right? Because if freeing up cash flow is what's most important to them, then for me, tax is a far lesser consideration. Now, uh, I, my accountant friend that I work with a lot uh, probably just twisted and he doesn't know why just yet uh, <laughs> hearing that one uh, because he doesn't like paying any more tax than they absolutely have to. And at the same time, I want to make sure that the client, if we can build from a really solid foundation where they have a great sleep at night factor, worst case scenario, they work an extra year or two relative to how they just paid out all that debt faster. Uh, most people, if they, if they have a more, more enjoyable ride along the way are more than willing to do those extra year or two. Uh, if they can, you know, if they can sleep at night. Yeah. And I certainly wasn't trying to let the uh, tax tail wag the planning dog as it were, right? That's, uh, that, that's very true. You know, I think unfortunately we lead too much with the tax uh, and that takes the focus off of our clients. Right? And that's really where it needs to be is on our clients. And that's, that's going to generate everything from somebody who's going to stick to the plan better to the person that's happy to connect you with their other colleagues. Right. There's any number of other reasons I could give, but at the end of the day, we've got to keep the focus on the client. Yeah, and that sleep at night factor, like you said, that's, yeah, so important. Now, just on that note, so you taught, you, you I think, uh, alluded to it a couple times in your comments. What do you do about lifestyle creep? This is a famous problem for physicians and dentists. And how do you, how do you play that, uh, that, I don't know, whatever the, the bad cop there, what do you do there, Adrian? You know, it, that's a great question. Um, one of the, I'll rephrase it just a little bit if you don't mind, yeah. which is I often hear things like the work-life balance, right? And so sometimes that lifestyle creep, they only think, well, I have to work harder and harder and harder in order to adjust for that. Um, and yet they're in danger of, of burnout. Uh, sometimes they're not able to scale up to the same way or it's delaying their planning. 
So what I like to do is be able to reverse engineer how much you need to work. I'm working with this one surgeon and, and they make significant income. And everybody that they were dealing with was saying, oh, well, if you give me this much money, I can grow your pot this big or I can grow your pot that big. And what we worked out was how big and what kind of pots we needed first. And at the end of it, I'm able to go to this person and say, look, we only need you earning about 60%. In other words, three out of every five days, if, you, if they could schedule themselves that way. But only about 60% in order to make your debt and your lifestyle and your savings, your insurance, all that happen. Now, the 40% difference, that's how I would address that person's lifestyle creep. So with that 40%, they can work less. That's a lifestyle choice, right? They can work the same, but accelerate their plans, like their debt repayment or savings, or spend more. Because from a, and that's where I'm less concerned about the tax, because from a, a planning perspective, it's irrelevant. I've already accounted for the plan based on the 60%. And so the way, best way that I can account for that lifestyle creep is to sort of say, look, of, of your income that you earn, here's what you know, I need to make your plan happen, right? And you're giving them permission to spend the rest. And if that's all chewed up in the lifestyle creep, no problem. But it, what it doesn't do is it doesn't, it, it doesn't erode the plan because we're robbing Peter to pay Paul because their lifestyle is increasing. Therefore their accelerated debt isn't happening or their savings isn't happening. So that's the way that I would tackle that one is, is a, a better way to discuss that. I don't believe really in a work-life balance. There's just, there's, what do I need to earn? And above that is my choice that I have to work with, if that, if that makes sense. I've noticed you don't believe in that work-life balance. But anyways. Um, <laughs> so Is that a personal comment? <laughs> well, I think you and I share, uh, share a, an ethic there around that. I was about to point it right back at you, Jason. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm not, uh, yeah, this is, I'm not, whatever, people who live in glass houses, that kind of stuff, I know, right? <laughs> um, but uh, I wanted to comment that that's really pretty much directly out of what FP Canada shows now in the competency profile is that understanding trade-offs, right? That's how that shows up in the competency profile. And I, I think it's a great way to understand the trade-off, right? You're, you're not working from the top end, you're working from kind of what you need and then move from there, right? When I had that conversation with that particular surgeon, he literally just pointed at me and said, you're the first person to ever tell me that. Now, it's listed other areas. I wish I could say that I was the genius that came up with, with that kind of a strategy. But it was the first time he had heard that. And that has opened the door for other introductions because everybody's like, hey, this guy's, this guy's figured it out. I'm like, well, I'm happy to take the credit. But at the same time, uh, I just think it's the right way to approach that one. I have another uh, client of mine that uh, really just, he, he can't help but get into whatever that next sexy investment is. You know, I had to learn what a 10 bagger was, which seems obvious, except I'd never heard it until I started working with this person. Uh, and he would, used to come to me and go, well, can I do this one? I really, he's trying to justify to me why he wanted to go to some speculative investment. And then he'd go, no, wait a minute. This is the amount that's over what I need to earn so I can do this. And I said, <laughs> yes, the only condition that I have is you're not allowed to leverage up on it because that will then impact my debt planning strategies with them. So as long as they don't leverage up on debt, uh, I do track them. I ask them to let me know these ones because, you know, if it's happening every single year or multiple times a year and I, a few years later, I can go, you know, um, that's a half a million dollars that could have gone towards these other things. So, hey, you know what? I'm not chastising, but the next time the one comes up, 
you might want to think about, is that really what you want to do? And I'm starting to see clients that do that where they say, you know what? We no longer feel that we need to keep up with everybody else because what we've realized, there's always that next incredible investment. And so at the end of the day, we just want to get to where we want to go. And they, so eventually they, they come to their own realization that way. With do, our you guidance. A, <laughs> do you have a sense for where those, you know, whatever, 10 bagger, or those, those kinds of investment opportunities show up for these folks? Like, is it from within their network or is it an aggressive marketer or? It's often from within their network, in my experience anyway. You know, they, everybody's heard of the one person that, that got a, you know, a 10 bagger, but not of the, the 12 other things that they lost all their money on. Right? That's, that's not something we tend to brag about. Um, you know, there, there's a real, um, there's a paradox for high income earners. There really is. So what I mean by that, uh, so when I say high income earners, I'm generally talking those professional corporations because that's where we tend to see those individual high income professionals. And the issue is this, the lower your income, let's say that I'm a salary person making $30,000 or $40,000 a year, I need to earn a rate of return if I ever really want to be able to retire. But if I'm a surgeon making six, dollars $700,000 a year, let's say, right? I'm both uninterested in anything that's not a double digit rate of return as, as a blanket statement, but by the same token, I could get a zero rate of return and throw money under the mattress at my ability to save. I'll get there eventually. And you're probably, you never really have to retire or the kinds of jobs that you do as a surgeon in retirement, like go on to be a hospital admin or instructor at a university are still paying comfortable six figure wages. Absolutely. And in particular for professionals and professional corporation owners, um, there's a real identity to that. You know, I am an engineer. I am a lawyer. I am an accountant. I am a doctor. And so even if it's just one or two days a week, they really like keeping their hand in. So for them, retirement isn't as much of a consideration as maybe we would like it to be. Right. Yeah. Um, but by the same token, um, it's a challenge because if they, the higher the risk, the higher the return generally would be an accepted um, uh, view. And yet they'll only look at the, the return. And if it's, if it's, so when we're talking about, you know, a 4% in a, in a life insurance policy, let's say, and again, they don't, there's a difference between lightly, no, uh, sorry, pre-tax, lightly taxed, like retained earnings, after tax, deferred tax, <laughs> like, you know, you can't blame them for going, well, 4%, that's a yawn. Over here, I can get 10. Okay, but with the way that the tax rules are, that 10 is a 4, except this one can't go negative. Right. right? Uh, properly set up, of course. Yes, but that's what course. I'm getting at. It's just that it's a greater conversation. Uh, so the higher their income, it, you know, not everybody, you get some people that are great with their money, but I just find that more and more people, the higher their income, the more that they're just, if it's not a, a great rate of return or some sexy investment that all of their colleagues are doing, and that's, again, how they would normally hear about those ones, it, it's, that, it's that FOMO, that's that fear of missing out. Yeah. You know, they'll get to where they want to go eventually anyway, but if somebody gets another million or two because of some great investment, that's going to kill them. And so they want to be invested. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm actually interested, Adrian, I know you're a big student or a big fan of behavioral finance reading, um, and I hear it. I like you're not using the language that you read in the behavioral finance texts, but do you feel like it has crept into your thinking about these things a fair bit? Everything. 
I would challenge anybody to, to give me an example of something a client has done that couldn't be at least acknowledged, if not explained, by some aspect of behavioral, right? You know, even when we, when we put together a solution for a client, you know, when you're putting together one solution for a client, you're actually presenting three, right? Uh, so let's say it's an insurance one. Um, the, what you're positioning is, here's how we're going to protect your income. Yeah. But the other option is I could have something happen to me and not have insurance or nothing will happen to me and I don't have insurance, yeah. right? So which one do you think they think is their situation? Well, it's nothing's going to happen to me and I don't need the insurance, right? Yeah, of course. So we, we perceive we position, that bad things happen to other people, right? Correct, right? Yes. So we want to be able to position things in a way that lets them feel like it is their choice. You know, I don't like overcoming objections. I've always hated the term overcoming objections because for me that's a lose-lose i think in what we do we should be able to anticipate the objections and position them in a way that it's a much smoother ride for the client because whether you go under over or through an objection it was still a bumpy ride for that client right? yeah uh, and so the more that you understand behavior actually my income well, literally tripled uh, the first year that i really took to the best that i could my understanding of behavioral sciences uh, and applied that and really thought about how I was interacting with my clients, uh, the next year it tripled. And let me tell you, that'll make you a believer very, very quickly that maybe you're onto something. It's constantly being refined and there's new things to learn or maybe you look at it and go, oh, I can't believe that's the way I positioned something last year. Or you know, there's, that's always going to happen. And I think it should always happen. You know, we should always be challenging the way that we do things and, and continually improving. So I'm a, I'm a huge fan of behavioral um, it's one of those things that I think if you're not accounting for behavior in your planning, you've really only got one side of the story. I have to ask then, because there'll be a bunch of people asking, what's he talking about? So it, give me one resource, one favorite on the behavioral finance frontier. Um, well, from a resource, actually, uh, I hope I'm okay to give some, a uh, few book recommendations. Yeah. Uh, because these were, these were the three that I have mentioned to numerous people over and over and over again. And they had the most impact, even though they weren't financial books. So for me, and I would read them in this order, uh, it was Paradox of Choice by Barry Schwartz. And what that introduced me to was essentially the paradox being the more choices, we're built in a society that, that values more and more choices. More and more choices is great. That's what we want. And yet the more choices we have, the less we're able to make a decision. And it also introduced me to the concept of A, A minus B. So for example, something might be equidistantly valued. It might do the same thing, but not equidistantly priced. Right? So I have something that's $80, $220, and $300, right? The $80 one is there to, it's designed to be the throwaway. Because if you just saw something for $220, you go, is that a good price? I, I don't know. I need to see it in context. But if it's $100, $200, $300, we don't really see that, right? And so I use actually in my planning when I put together three cash flow statements, one that says, well, here's, if we'd never met, nothing ever happened to you, and your cash flow is just wonderful all the way through because that's what they think as their default is them. Here's this one. Here's if we just had one or two years of, of no income for whatever reason. And that's that $90 one that they're going to throw away. I don't, I don't want that one. And then the one in the middle is the one that we would see, well, you know, to avoid that one that we don't want, and it's pretty close to that first option, here's we can, how we can put in the insurance. And when they have that one in context of the other two, right, now they're much more able to make that choice and go, that makes sense to me. Right. Uh, you even see this at a gas station. Next time you go to a gas station that has a car wash, 
right? Yeah. Take a look. You'll see usually it's like, you know, $8, $10, $12, something like that. But you'll see this much for the first option, everything but one for the middle option, and then the, 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 everything in the last option, which I couldn't even tell you what some of those things are. Yeah. Uh, and so we're again being being pushed, if you will, to that middle option, right? So you, once you start to be aware of behavioral, uh, I won't say marketing, but the way that people we are uh, interacting, you'll see it everywhere, and you will have a much greater success rate with your clients when you start to factor in that behavioral uh, aspect. So that's one paradox of choice. I'm going to push you oh, here for the next yeah, two. Sorry yeah. about that. So paradox of choice. Uh, the other one that I, that I like next is uh, Predictably Irrational by Dan Ariely. Um, I've actually had the pleasure of, uh, well, say speaking with him. He actually uh, speaks his emails uh, because if he heard he had that he was actually severely burned um, in, in Israel, actually, which is how he got into the behavioral sciences. I'll save that for another time. Uh, but he's uh, very, very fascinating. So the basic premise there is we're all irrational, but we're predictably so. Right? So therefore, the way that we can phrase things, we position things, we can kind of anticipate how our clients or prospects are going to react to something. Yep. I'm looking and for my third, copy of it here. I have that book on my shelf somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, he has the upside of rationality. He also has the, the, the dishonest truth, the honest truth about dishonesty. Sorry, he's got some great reads, but I would definitely read the predictably irrational. And because he also talked about social norm and market norm, right? If, if something is free, how do we perceive it? And if it's a, even a single penny, which arguably is free, we treat it very, very differently. So it's a great book. And then the third one is uh, On Second Thought by, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, Ray Eber, H-E-R-B-E-R-T. Okay. And it is a terrific read. It's R-W-E-Y is his first name. Um, and it just really gets into that mindset of, of how people – perceive information right, and how we would react to those ones. So when I read those three, I overhauled my entire planning process from the questions that I was asking to the planning process that I would have for them so that you know, I'll tell a client say, look, you don't need to sit with me while I thumb through your mortgage documents, but our time together should be on all the things that I can't see off of a statement and your thoughts on this or that. And so it's led to much better questions, which leads to much more engaged and connected clients, which itself leads to higher savings rate or higher premiums and a lot more referrals as of it because they go, wow, like you really got me. Right? And so I strongly encourage people to read those ones. Yeah. Like your surgeon example, right? That's, uh, you know, yeah, perfect. So uh, going back to then dealing with your your prof corps, and I I think we could talk about behavioral finance stuff all day, right? I, I you know I love that topic as well. What about then uh, the risk management side? So you you mentioned you know placing the insurance sale and making sure that they understand. Um, what else do you have to to put into that risk management conversation? Well, first of all, I would want to take a look at is this a sellable business down the road? Right. You know, one of the issues that I've seen, especially with some of my old, not my older clients, but with clients that have become mine, is where they are, if it's a business that's just basically you're just going to hang up your spurs and you're done and walk away, like, you know, if you're a hospitalist at a, at a you know, physician, you're probably not going to have a, you can't have anything to sell. You know, that's fine. But if you have, let's say you're a dentist or somebody has a sellable you know, client list or something, the problem is, is that if you get too much of a cash value within a policy, you might throw yourselves offside from lifetime capital gains exemption, as an example, right? 
But we can't roll that one out. We can't butterfly that out without triggering a deemed disposition. Now, there are ways that we can kind of work with that, but it takes time. So if all of a sudden the person walks up and says, I've got the, this big check for your company, Mr. Client, uh, and that person goes, this is fantastic. Then, you know, and I've seen it where, especially with dentists, when one of those dental purchasing companies comes in and they go into blackout, right? And they make all these decisions in the absence of getting advice from people like, you know, you or me. Uh, you know, it, it really, it's, it's one of those ones where you have to sit there and say, well, if we do this, it might have an impact here down the road. Which one is the one that's the preferable uh, option? Do we, do we save within a tax sheltered vehicle within our corporation, knowing that we might have to give up the life and capital gains exemption? Or is that really important for you to have? And so that's one of the, the things that I would, I would certainly take, uh, take a look at. Um, and with this next one isn't necessarily specific to, um, to professional corporations, but just generally speaking, even term insurance within a corporation, you know, if you roll that thing out, but there's been a material health change, right, to that person, you might have an actuarial value to that policy and trigger a shareholder benefit, right? So just, and then there's another question that I see with insurance and, uh, well, professional corporations, which is things like critical illness. Do I hold that in the company or do I hold that personally? Um, my viewpoint there is I want the critical illness where the liability is. Right? If I'm going to have it for uh, a mortgage, let's say, and maybe I split them, maybe I have two policies, you know, one that's in my company so that it covers my income. But if I want to just, I don't want to win the battle and lose the war. I don't want to save on the, the premium difference, especially on a term basis critical illness, but then have to pay the dividend tax to get it out to pay off my mortgage. Right? So there's often, there's a lot of question about do I want it corporately or personally? And I say, well, it, it doesn't really have to be one or the other, but I just like, if, if the liability is loss of income, sure, I'll have that in the company. I'm not talking disability here, just critical illness. Yeah, I got it, yeah. And if the liability is something like a car loan or a mortgage, then I generally prefer to have enough of that outside and for the right amount of term. If it's a, if it's a mortgage with you know, 15 years left or something like this, then maybe I'll just get a shorter term um, critical illness policy, but maybe keep a permanent policy up in the company because of whatever other reasons I might want. So it's, it, I like to say that, especially for my doctors, they really like this analogy too, is it's not, a, it's not an on off switch. It's a dimmer switch, right? Now on this one side is pros and cons. The other side is pros and cons. And somewhere along that spectrum, it's going to be the right set of pros and cons. that's going to match with what you're trying to do. Makes sense. And then of course you have to think about is the corp going to be around forever Right. What if they move to the United States or something like that? And well, you know, and there's other that. things like, you know, we, we, we hear a lot in Alberta that, uh, you know, physicians might be leaving, let's say, to go to B.C. And, you know, B.C. has its own rules there. I mean, they can be owned by a holding company. Uh, so then the question is, where do you own the, the insurance? And they also have a matching uh, RSP kind of equivalent there. But that requires you to pay out salary. And so then the, the questions can quickly become, well, how much are you gonna be saving in retained earnings within your company? Because the number one reason somebody incorporates, at least in my opinion, is a deferral on income that they don't need for their daily use now. Right? Yeah, especially Prof Corp. I mean, Prof, because you don't get the liability protection. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So how much do you think about when you're, when you're talking to your docs, you just talked about insurance very much as a risk management tool. How much estate and tax planning conversation do you have around insurance? Well, you know, there was a really interesting report I need to send to you if, uh, if I haven't already. And it basically was saying that we care about our future self about as much as we care about the average stranger on the street. Yep. 
Yeah, this is Hal Hirschfield. Uh, I know this well, actually. So, <laughs> exactly. Yes. So the issue there, and the funny thing with insurance is, you know, because a lot of places, you know, one of the talks that I give, you know, I ask, well, why do restaurants, generally speaking, get you pay at the end of a meal, not as you order? Or why do, if you're going to get a new car, they say three months free instead of lowering it by 25 bucks for the whole three years, for example. And what they're doing is they're separating the pain of paying from the joy of having. Because they know if we can get it without the pain of paying for it, we're much more likely to buy it. But what's interesting, and we're sticking the bill to that future guy that I, that I don't care about, you know, the future me. The problem is insurance kind of works the opposite way, right? I, my present self gets all the, the, the pain of paying for my, that future guy's benefit that I don't care about, right? And so when you're talking about the savings side of the equation or using it in some other, other than just a pure, like every conversation needs to start with that. What is the risk management here? What is it that we're trying to protect against? You know, we want to get from A to B. Do we want to get it in this kind of a vehicle or do we want to, you know, put on the little air conditioners or the whatever else? You know, but it has to fundamentally first start with what is the need? Right. Um, beyond that, you know, for, so for example, I've seen permanent policies when the, when the professional is making, let's say, $250,000. And I, I, unless you really know this is going to be, like if you're dealing with an estate freeze, that's easy. You know, we've got a million dollar estate freeze, a million dollar policy, great. If you're dealing with a younger professional and you know, they're making good money, I mean, a lot of dentists, for example, will earn two fifty dollars to $300,000, maybe somewhere in there, maybe a little higher, maybe a little lower, depending, but in that range. But when you factor what they're taking out for their own lifestyle and, and debt management needs and having a diverse savings strategy, like maybe into their RSP or, or into their, uh, you know, just conventional, you know, stocks or whatever else they have in their company, is there really enough left there to make the strategy of an overfunded permanent insurance worthwhile? Now, if they're completely concerned about the markets, okay, maybe there's an argument there if you structure it the right way and we won't have a lot. But I would also sit there and go, okay, but what happens if you lose your job? Right? So the, the conversation of, of a permanent insurance or a savings strategy, my preferred would be, okay, let's get some term in there first. Let's build up some of your other savings, you know, your emergency savings, if you will, or you know, pay down some of that debt and get a solid foundation. And then, then we'll flip the switch, you know, if and when that becomes appropriate. Um, if a person is earning, you know, great income, sure, we, we can consider that one. But, you know, unless we're going to earn at least that kind of 350 or higher, I tend to be pretty gun shy about getting into a permanent insurance talk, at least at the outset. And I assume that would carry over to IFA and that kind of thing as well. Yeah, you know, in my opinion, the, one of the biggest challenges with the IFA isn't the, the immediate. I think it's often sold wrong, in, in my opinion, uh, such as it's free insurance. And it's not free insurance. It might have a net cash flow zero aspect, but it's not free. But the other is that later on, if you don't have a growing, building active business income to soak up all of the NCPI deduction, Right? then those numbers that they're going to show are, are totally skewed, let alone, of course, if you get a change in the interest rate versus the rate of return and all those other things that can throw things offside. But it's something that's not often looked at. It's as sold as here's free insurance. Uh, I'm not saying everybody's out there doing that, and I certainly don't mean to, to imply otherwise, but I've seen it sold that way, and, and I have a real problem with that. Yeah, I just ran into one that was a, a, a ridiculous, like it was – a pharmacist, a relatively flat business and was sold an IFA where the premium is like 80% of, of revenues. And I thought, 
Yeah. Wow. Like, and all it takes is one COVID hit and that person might have a house of cards coming tumbling down. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a, it just runs such a risk to me to, to, to get that close to the line. Right. Yeah. Um, now you do a ton of this kind of thing. You do, I know uh, you volunteer with advocates. You uh, right now you're active at the, both KLU and MDRT at the national level. And, um, and I know you've ton, done a ton of mentoring work with, uh, with advisors who are trying to, to learn how to sort of find their footing. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how that works for you, um, both in terms of, like, are you ever concerned you're developing your competition? And, and then, because it seems, it, you know, the, the physician market, it's not a massive market, right? You're, you're... No, but here's the thing. Um... I'll always say to the people that I've, I've mentored or just people I interact with is uh, the, the path to success is to be authentically you, right? So even if I give you my entire playbook, I can't do it the way you do it. You can't do it the way I do it. And it's going to sound discordant in that, in that prospect's ears if you're trying to come across as me or if I'm trying to come across as you. So uh, the other is that, you know, it sounds cheesy, but, you know, your success as an advisor doesn't come at my expense, right? It's that one candle lights another kind of aspect. And so I would like us to be held to a higher level, like us to be viewed in a higher level. Uh, and so by sharing information and creating ideas, like if somebody comes you know, years later and, and whoops my butt in production, I'm going, fantastic, would you mind sharing some ideas back with me? You know, this, it's very, very rarely that I encounter uh, a prospect who is currently also dealing with another person that they're interested in chatting with, let alone somebody that I know. <laughs> so it's not a big pool, as you said, but it's also not that many that really, some people say that they, you know, that, that they deal with doctors, for example, but they might just have one or two clients. Almost 100% of my clients have some kind of professional corporation of some sort. So, uh, and in terms of the volunteering aspect, I mean, this year is a particularly busy year. As you know, I'm, I'm privileged and uh, a little uh, more than a little humbled to be both on the director uh, for KLU, uh, one of the directors, as well as on the Canada chair for MDRT. But here's the thing. Uh, in addition to books that I've read, uh, boy, it's standing on the shoulders of giants. I have been connected with some of the most amazing people that what I do all, all year, like, oh, well, that's good. I did that in January. You know, <laughs> and yet they're so willing to share. And so for me, with the impact they've had on my business, I can't possibly make a difference to theirs in the sense of, you know, that pay it back. So all I can really do is that whole pay it forward, you know, emulate what I've seen others doing and, and to the best of my ability, help that person become, become a success as well. So uh, I have no concerns about, about sharing ideas. You know, what I like is what I'm sharing. I want them to share back. I want them to hear what's working, what's not working. Uh, you know, it's just like, you know, it takes a diamond to sharpen another kind of a thing, right? Like we want to be able to, to in order to teach anybody, as you well know, <laughs> with all the work that you do with Business Career College, uh, you know, you really need to not only know it, but you have to know it to the level that you can explain it such as a six-year-old could understand it. Right? <laughs> and if not, as the saying goes, you don't understand it yourself. Right? It's, yeah, I, I do agree with this. That the, the best way to learn something is by teaching it. That's, yeah. And, and yes, it's a, I always encourage everybody to take advantage of that opportunity when it's provided, right? Get out in front of an audience and, and teach a difficult concept. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Do you have any last minute thoughts, Adrian, for the advisor out there who might be thinking, you know, they want to work in a, a professional market or they might even just want to niche down, as you had said earlier? Yeah. Probably the best advice I can get because, uh, you know, I, I've heard things like, you know, that I'm lucky uh, or whatever else, you know, uh, I started with no natural market uh, other than, you know, I had my own doctor and I had my, you know, my kids' doctors and stuff like this, my own dentist. Um, but if you really want to get into a market, uh, my suggestion would be go and ask them. And what I mean by that is this, you know, how I got into working with, with physicians and dentists specifically is I said, look, I really wanted to write articles so that if nothing else, I had a better understanding of the concepts, but I wasn't really sure other than just sound like yet another tax person somehow uh, what they were interested in. So I went to people that I knew, like you know, my own doctor, not trying to get them as a client, but I simply asked this, I said, look, um, I want to write articles but I don't know what's most important to you. Would you mind if I asked you just two questions? And the first question being is, when you're talking with your colleagues, what are the kind of concerns or frustrations that they tend to talk about? Because that will give me great ideas to research and, and come up with ideas. And the other is, I want to share these ideas. The problem is that I don't know where to share them to. So with all the things that you need to read and the places you go online to see each month, what's one kind of publication or what's one website that you tend to go to every single time or read cover to cover? So the best way I can find to get into a market is to ask them, don't go out there and try to get them as a client, at least not yet. <laughs> going out there and saying, I really want to write things that are going to be so helpful to you. But the, the way you, that I can do that is to understand what's a concern for you in a general sense, because that way they're not feeling um, you know, like you're, you're coming after them or anything and they're happy to share and say, boy, when we talk about this or, you know, we've had this experience where we don't believe in mutual funds or we don't believe in insurance or whatever the case may be, they're going to tell you what they're talking about. And then they don't mind sharing where you can put your solution to those concerns where they're going to see it. Yeah. Perfect. I, the, that value of good market research, you can't beat it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you know, as uh, as somebody that I that I greatly admire, Bruce Southington would say, "See the people, right?" Right. So you yeah. got to get out there and see the people. That also means doing your research. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, I'd like to thank you very much for, as usual, giving so freely of your time and uh, and your expertise here, Adrian. That's excellent. Um, and have a wonderful day. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure, and I would encourage anybody if they have any questions to 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 reach out. Uh, it's really one of those ones where I love hearing what other people, uh, what their perspectives are on things or things you think that are, hey, I experienced this. You know, together we really are that much better. And so, uh, so thank you so much for your time, Jason. It's really been a pleasure to, to chat with you. Perfect. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Okay, you hear in the interview that Adrian is a big fan of behavioral finance, he even has his sort of three behavioral finance uh, books ready to go. And these are all worth reading. I've actually not read on second thought. I shouldn't say that, I guess. I can't vouch for it yet, but uh, I'll uh, line up on second thought in my reading list. But uh, Paradox of Choice, of course, is quite famous. Uh, I do want to take a moment here to talk about this. And this is something that uh, I'll talk with Adrian about over a beer one day. One of the issues that we see with some of these early experiments and this has come up a little bit with the Stanford Marshmallow experiment, the very famous Walter Michelle experiment, is this idea of replicability or duplicability. Uh, this is something that Dan Kahneman has been making the rounds on lately. A lot of the behavioral finance experiments that we see cited or quoted or referenced heavily 
have fallen into some question due to an inability to duplicate the same outcomes. And it's just a, a problem in general, that it's a relatively new field. We know that the Walter Michel experiment, for example, was done in the mid-1950s, or at least started in the mid-1950s. That's one of the very early experiments. We're only looking at about 70 years here. And unlike, say, physics and chemistry experiments, where it's generally pretty easy to, to duplicate the, uh, the lab uh, circumstances in which you I conducted that experiment. With behavioral finance, it's a much more difficult thing to do. And this is something that shows up a little bit in the Walter Michel experiment, where Stanford in the 1950s uh, was a lot different than, say, a lot of university campuses today. You just have a different culture that shows up there. And that can lead to problems with trying to, to replicate that same experiment. So unlike, say, chemical compounds, which are, I'm going to say, and of course I'm completely ignorant of chemistry, but chemical compounds, which wouldn't have changed from 1957 until today, uh, I assume argon is still argon, for example, uh, the actual human participants in the experiment have changed potentially quite a bit. And you can look at social media, for example, as impacting that. So we get into this question of replicability, and I've heard a couple of folks call into question the the Barry Schwartz uh, jam jar experiment that uh, is so fundamental to the paradox of choice, um, I don't think that's a reason to discredit it. I think in practice, we do see exactly what Adrian suggests here, that if I have a hundred choices, it's very difficult to make a good choice. If I have three curated choices, I would suggest I'm much more likely to come to a good decision. The number for today's episode is six. The number for today's episode is six. To obtain your CE credits for listening to this episode, you'll need the color and number in order to get through the quiz. And also you'll have to pay attention to the interview. There are five questions in there and you'll want to do well on all five. Pass grade is 60%. So the place to go to do that is bccquiz.online. That's BCC is in Business Career College. So pop over to bccquiz.online. There's a short five-question quiz there. You should be able to do it on your mobile phone once you are parked. Then you can subscribe right then. It's pretty easy to do. We're always looking for more subscribers. I think this is a super efficient way to get your CE credits. And it's pretty common for me when I tell people about the podcast for CE credits, they say that's a great idea, but I'd still like to get those numbers up. So please pop over to bccquiz.online. 15 bucks a month will get you all the CE credits you need, including your professional responsibility credits. And we're doing two episodes a month now, or one episode every two weeks. So please pop on over to bccquiz.online and subscribe. Okay, thanks so much for joining us today. Please do pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. That makes it easier to discover us. I do want to thank folks. I know that uh, you've been solicited, those who are subscribers, uh, paying subscribers to the podcast. 
have been solicited to help out with an information gathering exercise with uh, Sean Fian, who's the VP of Technology at uh, We Know Training, which is our parent company. And I appreciate everybody's uh, help. Uh, we're trying to improve the offering for students here, trying to make it easier to obtain your CE credits or make it more seamless, at least, to obtain CE credits. So thanks to those who were uh, kind enough to uh, contact Sean and offer up your time. I know everybody's time is precious. And certainly, I didn't want to clog up people's inboxes. I hope that everybody appreciates the trade-off there. Please join us again in two weeks when we'll sit down with uh, Mike Cosgrove from Tamlo to talk about anti-money laundering, a topic we haven't talked about before on the podcast, and I really enjoyed that discussion as well. Thanks so much, and enjoy your continued studies. A few people help out with getting this podcast to air. Joseph Tong takes care of our editing and music and a bunch of the technology stuff in the background. Maria Nguyen gets all of our various accreditations done through the uh, various accrediting bodies. And Colton Nierbeski and his team make sure that the word gets out. They take care of the marketing and all that goes along with that. Mm-hmm.